Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, entrepreneurs, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues and our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. So today we're pivoting back to finance public policy, but not through the lens of a policymaker, but from the perspective of a very seasoned entrepreneur and business developer. Uh, our guest today is Mr. Lawrence Latimer. Uh, Lawrence leads IEX Ventures. IEX Group operates the, the investor exchanges, IEX, and it's a stock exchange uh, for U.S. equities that is built for investors and companies. Uh, prior to IEX, Lawrence uh, previously founded uh, LGL Growth Consulting International and has worked as a consultant at McKinsey. Uh, he held various senior roles in venture-backed startups and had led growth initiatives and new market entries uh, in U.S., Asia, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, it's such a great pleasure to have uh, Lawrence in the studio, and I would like to especially thank Princeton's Graduate School and Benheim Center for Finance for connecting us with Lawrence. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Saga, thank you. Um, pleasure to be here. Uh, so why don't we start with the most basic terminologies. Uh, many of our listeners are probably not so familiar uh, with the idea of a U.S. equities exchange. And sure. What do you do at IEX? Uh, sure. So I'll talk a little bit about what an exchange is, and then I'll talk a little bit about what the role that I have is at, at, at IEX. Great. So at IEX, we're a stock exchange. Uh, and so many people know us from Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, which is about the founding of our company. And he's from the uh, fellow Princeton alum. A stock exchange is a place where you trade equities. Um, so if you want to buy 100 shares of Netflix or Apple, we are one of 13 public venues where you can do that. Uh, and so we match buyers and sellers of these uh, equities. And the buyer might be a, a broker who's buying on behalf of a individual or a large institution. Uh, and we, again, are the market center. So we are the place that, that connects those buyers and sellers. So we uh, effectuate the trades. Uh, and then pass on information to both the buyers and sellers as well as the clearing agents to, to help process those trades uh, on a post-transaction uh, basis. That's the core business. We also have a listing business. So, if again, if you're Apple or Netflix or, um, or, or you know, Uber or uh, Spotify and you want to have a, a, a primary venue where you list your security, so that's the venue that is technically responsible for uh, the the well-functioning operations around your securities. Uh, the today, the primary responsibility of your uh, of your listing venue is to open the stock. So you you make the market at the open, uh, which sets the price, and then at the closing auction. So you're setting the price at the end of the day. Other exchanges where you aren't listed are really price takers, or excuse me, um, uh, price takers in that case. Uh, the uh, primary listing venue is the place that opens and closes the uh, the open and close open auction and the closing auction for a particular security. So that's the, really the main issue. And so we've got one company on our listing platform called Interactive Brokers that moved over uh, in October of 2018, and a good pipeline of companies that we ex we hope uh, and are certainly encouraging to uh, either transfer or to do their primary listing at uh, at IX. How is IEX different from the traditional stock exchanges we've all heard of? New York Stock Exchange, sure. NASDAQ. Yeah, those would be our, our very direct uh, competitors. IEX was formed on the fundamental basis about building fairer markets and really the mission of the organization. And so our founders, uh, core founders, included Brad Katsuyama, who's our, our CEO, Ronan Ryan, uh, John Schwal, and, and Rob Park, kind of the, the original four uh, executives uh, and founders. They identified a problem in the market and really a series of problems in the market around 
the ability to arbitrage certain structural advantages that was, uh, and these advantages were facilitated by the other exchanges, and those were around information and around the, um, uh, the ability to act on that information faster than others could. Uh, so through the sale of things like preferential access to market data, uh, the sale of things like preferential access to um, technology services, particularly what we call co-location, so I can physically place my my server closer to the server of the exchange. Uh, those and that things, will give you an advantage. Those things give you a structure. In that case, if I p physically place my server closer to the uh, exchange's server, uh, I uh, all of the things being equal, I can act on information faster than someone who's 10 feet behind me or 100 feet behind me or 1,000 feet behind me. And that it will be a very, very small, small advantage, but it's a structural advantage that if I have invested in technology and, and processing power and other things, I can take advantage of that at a very small scale. But over hundreds of millions and billions of trades, it winds up being a fair amount of money, billions of dollars a year that are drained from the system in that way through structural advantage where these participants aren't necessarily contributing to price discovery or contributing new information to the market, they're actually just taking advantage of these stru potentially structural arbitrage opportunities. So IX was built to try to reduce the ability of, um, of participants in the market to take advantage of those structural opportunities. So we've introduced a very small 350 microsecond delay into incoming orders and market data, which allows the participants in our market at the point of transaction uh, all inf all parties have uh, access to the same information and sort of equitable information. So you can't kind of get information in another exchange and race to IAX faster than others to act on that information. That might that small delay uh, makes the information that is available in IAX consistent across all participants. So uh, just to repeat mm -hmm. that po that point. So you're basically saying in IAX. Uh, even though someone could place their server a little bit closer to you or they could have some better well, technology. Well, at IEX, we actually don't do those things. So we don't sell co-location services. We don't sell um, tiered uh, market data and sort of tiered access to market data. Uh, those are what our competitors do uh, and are driving more than half of the revenue growth of, of those firms over the last five or six years. At IEX, we actually don't sell our market data. We give it away uh, at, at really at cost. Uh, we don't sell co-location services at all, so we just don't have that revenue line. We make our money as, as the traditional way that exchanges make their money by matching buyers and sellers. And so we're incented to provide the best quality of execution because that's how we differentiate ourselves. So for us, it's, it's vitally important in all of our R&D and all of our, our collective efforts going to providing the best experience for uh, natural buyers and sellers. So those who aren't looking for structural arbitrage advantages, but are actually just looking for the best price and execute orders, whether large or small, uh, at the best available price. It's, so your exchange uh, or, or uh, NASDAQ, they have mm -hmm. a revenue line that, that comes through from, from some of those arbitrage? I mean, you, you, they're um, public companies. You need to go take a look at their financials. But if, if at a high level, if you look at the, the numbers, they'll have a, a range of, of, of revenue lines. So one will be from their listing services, uh, and you know, there will be some amount of money there. Another will be from their transaction services, so the money they actually uh, make from making markets, uh, which is the thing that they're sort of regulatorily um, um, sort of endowed to do. There will be uh, at least two other lines. One includes technology services, and that includes things like co-location and, and, um, and um, communication lines and other things that um, exchanges have used to 
provide different types of experiences to their customers. Uh, again, we would argue at IEX that oftentimes those experiences are, are created and artificial and provide structural advantages that others can't necessarily take advantage of and don't add uh, information to the market to the price discovery process. Um, but again, that's our argument, and obviously our, our competitors have a different argument that they make about that. Uh, and then another line will be around market data and, and market data um, uh, services. And so they, uh, most of the exchanges will sell different kinds of data to their customers, uh, and oftentimes at different speeds. So if you're, for instance, IX had a kind of tongue-in-cheek um, video that we produced uh, earlier this year that talked about um, a cable that connects two servers. And in our case, we you know we call it the magic cable, and and um, but it was a kind of a send up of what our competitors do, which is charge you inordinate amounts of data for the cabling, the connectivity, uh, and if you want you know the one gig versus the ten gig versus the hundred gig um, um, uh, you know uh, pipe, it could be the difference between a you know thousand dollars a month, ten thousand dollars a month or more, uh, and it gives you milliseconds of difference in the ability to uh, access inf the speed at which you access information. I mean, just incredibly minute um, uh, differences in, in information. But if you're a high-frequency trading firm or someone that is has invested in the technology to take advantage of those opportunities, and your nearest competitor buys that, that cable for whatever the price is, then you have to do it, or else that competitor will have a structural uh, advantage over you someone who's not taking advantage of those opportunities. It's this kind of arms race uh, amongst uh, the customers of the exchanges to buy these new services or else they'll get um, uh, left behind in that kind of technology arms race. At IEX, we just said, we're not playing that game. That's not helpful to the market. That's not contributing to price discovery. And in fact, it oftentimes winds up being uh, an adverse experience for the true buyer, right? So the, at the end of the day, we're, we're here to serve institutional buy side, the sort of asset accumulators and, and asset managers like the Black Rocks of the world, the TAAs of the world, who are uh, amassing assets on behalf of individuals, you know, whether it's the teacher's pension fund, or the fireman's pension, the police's pension, someone's 401k. These are individuals. At the end of the day, these are individuals who have entrusted their money to these asset managers, and these asset managers are then responsible and have a fiduciary obligation to get the best quality uh, um, uh, experience for their customers. And so we take that, and, and we really have built our market around providing the best experience for those institutional buy-side customers that uh, in generally are, are representing, you know, again, pension funds and, and, and 401ks and other, um, at the end of the day, other people who are relying on this money for their retirement or for major you know, health expenses or you know, major, uh, other major expenses in their life. And we take that responsibility really seriously. Uh, so IEX CEO Brad Katsuyama, you just mentioned his name not very long ago. Mm -hmm. So he said that he and IEX have made a lot of enemies uh, over the over the years, mm -hmm. and he fully expects IEX to be his last job on the Wall Street, since there's no chance that the system accepts you back uh, after after you try to disrupt it. So how much pressure are you guys getting from from your peers in traditional? Wall Street institutions, and, and how do you see yourself as the disruptor? What are you fundamentally disrupting besides the uh, the fact, some of the factors you just mentioned? Yeah, uh, you know, this was this was said a little while ago. I hope uh, it certainly is, is my hope that the world has changed a little bit as a result of some <laughs> of the work that we've done, and this isn't as true today as it as it was necessarily then. 
you know, but we, we had and continue to have tremendous amount of support from the traditional Wall Street community, kind of broadly defined, really the capital markets community. If you take our application to become an exchange as a proxy for our support, we had over 400 comment letters that were submitted uh, in support of our application and a, and a relatively small number uh, that were submitted against, mostly from our, our, uh, our competitor exchanges as well as a handful of, of high-frequency trading firms whose business model uh, we, we were almost certainly to impact. But again, over 400 letters, these were more letters were written in support of our exchange application than were written for all the other exchanges and their applications combined. So we actually do have a tremendous amount of support from the institutional buy side, from uh, other participants, and increasingly even from the sell side who are seeing the value in what we can bring to them and their relationship with their customers. Now certainly, uh, you know, every firm, every for-profit firm is gonna have competitors, well, uh, most uh, overwhelming majority of for-profit firms are gonna have competitors, and so if you're a New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or, or, or CBOE BATS, uh, you don't want anybody to compete with you. And so they're going to compete and, and compete as, as hard as they can. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't expect any open offers from, from any of those firms for anybody <laughs> at IEX. Um, but uh, in general, I'd say that, that um, we actually have many more supporters than we do detractors uh, in the broader community. Uh, just the people who are detractors to us are, are fairly influential and certainly get a lot of media attention to other exchanges. And again, a small, relatively small number of a very vocal uh, high-frequency trading firms. I, I understand conceptually that how IEX uh, would be a direct competitor with places like New York Stock Exchange mm -hmm. or NASDAQ, but in practice, aren't don't they have certain uh, requirements for companies that could be listed on, on, on their exchanges? And, you know, for example, you need to submit certain years of financials, you need to have certain uh, amount of revenues every year. Uh, I, I don't know, what are some of the companies that would consider themselves to, to, to li list on those stock exchanges rather yeah. than IEX? And if you guys all have different companies and different kinds of firms coming to you, why are you guys competing with each other, right? You just all focus on your own market and you make you become the market mar uh, market maker for that area, right? Or yeah. So uh, the, uh, with respect to the other exchanges, I think it, there are, um, you know, I don't call it a zero-sum game, but it's not as if trade the amount of trading that goes on in any particular you know, period. You know, it's hard to measure by the day because it's quite volatile. But if you look over the course of the year, there hasn't been a dramatic um, increase in trading activity in years, really, since you know we went um, electronic uh, many moons ago. And so there isn't a whole lot of additional revenue to be had in the market from the exchange perspective. And so if you're, particularly if you're a public company and you've got to meet the demands of shareholders uh, and you're looking for ways to grow revenue, there's some relatively easy ways to do that. And I think the, the other exchanges have chosen to, to go down a route that, that, um, um, where they can generate additional revenue in ways that are good for their bottom line, good for their shareholders. It's an open question on whether, on how good those types of, of decisions and new product lines are for the market overall. And I'd say specifically with companies, you know, there, there are actually less public companies today, about half as many today as there were about uh, 11 years ago. And so the universe of public companies is actually shrinking, not growing, you know, despite the fact that we've had some pretty high-profile IPOs in the last few years. And for a very long time, there's really only been two places you could go, the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And so there's a lot of inertia and momentum that's built up into 
that 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 process, that IPO process in particular. Uh, and at a moment where firms are are really thinking about and the, and all the advisors around them that they have are really thinking about how do we just minimize the amount of risk in this moment, it certainly is is a challenging decision to make to go with somebody who's new. Uh, it's happened. You know, we've got uh, interactive brokers who's now listed on our exchange uh, and has been you know trading great uh, since he since they got here. We have a pipeline of companies that are very interested in, in either moving over or, or, or listing their, their stock on IEX. So we feel good about what the pipeline looks like. But it's once you're once you're there, it's not necessarily something that people think a lot about where exchange you're listed on because there's really only a couple of options. You know, for for the individual, it's like your bank account. Uh, how many people you know sit there uh, on a monthly basis and say? Is this really the right checking account for me? Is it should I go to to this other bank across the street that maybe is marginally better, or, or frankly maybe substantially better for my personal needs? But am I really asking those questions on a month to month basis? So do I do it once a year, maybe you know every couple, or when there's some shock to the system, uh, you know I don't know you maybe hit an overdraft or something weird happens. You're like, hey, this thing isn't really this account isn't really great for my current environment, my current situation. So now I'm going to look because something has happened, uh, and so. What we've done is is really take a very principles-based approach to our outreach and, and our, our and our marketing of what we do. Uh, it's all about quality. Uh, and for those firms that are really concerned about the quality of their execution on the transaction side or the quality of the experience that they have as a, as a listed company, we think we have something that's superior to offer. Uh, but it's slow and steady. Um, and we're, we're, we take the long view on most things. And so we're just trying to go about it in a very slow and methodical way. Uh, providing lots of information, lots of data, and just making sure we're responsive to the to our ultimate customers, which, again, on the transaction side, are, are really the institutional buy side, the natural buyers and sellers, and and the the principal corporates who are who want to align themselves and their investors behind the right exchange. That totally makes sense. So, uh, many people might say that you know decentralized technology like blockchain mm-hmm. uh, will make a huge difference in, in trading. Um, disrupt the system, the current system of exchanges that we're seeing today. Uh, and some others will say that, you know, trade simply be fully automated by, by algorithms and, and there will no be, not be traders in the future anymore. So what are your thoughts and, and predictions on how tech will further disrupt the space? Yeah. Well, I'm certainly not in the business of, of predicting anything. Um, you know, if I was, I'd be trading my own account and sort of making tons of money. But I can certainly speak to some of the themes that we we see at IEX uh, and and in the sort of ventures sort of function there as well as just more broadly in the the startup ecosystem in, in New York and in 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 North America. So first and foremost, when I, whenever I talk about blockchain, I always want to just level set because there's so much um, excitement. In the in the that sort of around that topic around that theme, uh, and I really t- like to break it down into a couple of things. So, when we think about Bitcoin or think about blockchain as underlying technology, we need to talk about whether we're talking about trading of instruments, so kind of the speculation, so you know, trading Bitcoin or Ethereum and these other things, or are we thinking about the underlying business use cases that the technology is actually solving. And so when I think about, you know, whether it's, it's when I think about sort of the underlying technology, and that's where I spend a lot of my time thinking about, much less on the speculation side, but much more about how does this technology help solve problems, I get pretty excited. I think there's some real uh, opportunity out there, uh, and you're starting to see some of it um, come to fruition, and where you're seeing many more 
not only proof of concepts, but started to see some real uh, commercial operations that are leveraging blockchain technology. At IX, we were a big early convert to the, again, the underlying uh, potential of the infrastructure of the technology itself. In 2015, we incubated and, and ultimately launched a company called Tradewind Markets. And that business, we brought in some strategic investors and kind of uh, spun it out. Uh, and that business now uh, uses some blockchain technology, so distributed ledger, te uh, distributed ledger technology as well as some cryptographic tools for the clearing and settlement of precious metals. So starting with gold, they now have a silver product, and um, they'll be launching more soon. And that was back in, again, 2015 and 16. The price, of, I want to think the price of Bitcoin was probably still in a few hundred bucks. Uh, but we, and we weren't all that excited about the trading and speculation, but we were very excited about the underlying infrastructure and the, the application of that technology. And I think we still remain uh, pretty bullish on the technology as an enabler. Uh, you know, there are those some large uh, VC firms, mostly out of the West Coast, that talk about it as if it was this is going to be as big as the Internet in terms of the way it changed society and business models and just you know, really blew up certain businesses and, and, and recreated them almost from the ground up. Uh, yeah, I'm not a, a big sort of predictor of things. So I don't know if it's going to be quite that big, but there's certainly some ways that these tools are enabling. Listen, at the end of the day, distributed ledger is just a shared database. Right. Uh, let's sort of call it what it is. And there are certain ways in which you can interact with it through cryptographic tools that preserve the types of security uh, and, um, and access that are so important to people that are putting vital information out into you know, what's otherwise the public realm. And so uh, you know, in financial services, one of the things that, that people get very sensitive about is the information that they're sharing. Uh, everyone... You know, almost every participant in, in capital markets and you know, largely in financial services is worried that their competitors are going to reverse engineer their strategies based on some kind of data exhaust. And so everybody's very sensitive about who their customers are and what their strategies are and the software that they write to, to, to trade and all these things. And so I think when I, when I look at, at, at blockchain and some of the, the activity that we see and, the, frankly, the, the folks who've come to us with different ideas and, 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 and potential applications and want to partner with us there's a lot that's happening on the infrastructure side again clearing and sediments one area that 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 is big in my universe in the capital markets universe there's a lot that's happening on the custody side so how do you you know how do you just store, store. these assets and then outside of that i mean you i read it like everybody else i think it's uh walmart that's doing thing on supply uh doing a lot of work on supply chain so establishing provenance uh, and chain of custody, leveraging some distributed ledger technology. You know, uh, I think the there's going to be many challenges, going to be many false starts. But I'm a, I'm fundamentally very bullish. You know, it's kind of to summarize, fundamentally very bullish about blockchain as an enabling technology that's going to create some very different business models and and create opportunities as well as disrupting some things that have existed for a long time. So if you're so bullish on it, why why? Uh, doesn't IX focus a little bit more? Did, are you guys using blockchain technology, doing a lot of R and D in in that area sure. at, at all? Well, I think like everybody else, we're we're um, investigating, we're researching, we're doing our diligence on what some of the potential applications are. In our case, we work in a very regulated industry, and so in order to um, deploy certain types of technology, in order to really restructure things, requires. Uh, the um, influence and input 
uh, in many cases, the the direct um, uh, acceptance or blessing by regulators, whether it's the SEC or the CFTC on the future side, or you know, at the state levels, money transfer license. New York's got sort of a bit license. So there's a lot of of regulatory complexity and in many cases uncertainty. Uh, that exists that are uh, vital to having a, a viable business model. And so that's you know, certainly one of the reasons why I think in our industry there hasn't been as much um, wholesale adoption of the technology, particularly in, in, in capital markets on the trading side, which is you know very heavily regulated. Uh, I would say, though, like, again, like everybody else we read, there's plenty of proof of concepts that are happening in market. There are plenty of proof of concepts that are happening internal to firms, so where you aren't subject to as uh, you know, as many of the same types of regulatory oversight to your underlying technology. Uh, and I think you're really starting to see, just at the early days, but really starting to see some viable applications that are starting to, to, to take traction or gain traction, take hold, uh, and really starting to, to spread. And so if I... If, 2017, we had that run up at the end of the year, and Bitcoin was at 20,000, and everybody was all excited about the speculation and trading. You know, and in the industry, you hear many talk about the sort of the, the this winter, sort of the Bitcoin blockchain winter. But what what I've seen really happening is that there's been a reversion to quality, I guess, and you're seeing many of these proof of concepts now moving to a more commercial application stage. So, uh, it's not necessarily sexy. Uh, but you are starting to see some real un, um, fundamental infrastructure, uh, um, not just in capital markets, but I think across industry, that's changing the way that that people are doing everything from again establishing provenance to chain of um, uh, chain of control to um, just you know, trading activity. Uh, so you mentioned the the word uh, infrastructure, and when I think about flaws or improvements and needs to happen in, in infrastructure, w- one story that. Uh, always pops up in my mind is when Facebook gets listed mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Uh, the exchange, I think it was um, Nasdaq, right, or it was Nasdaq that just couldn't clear the trades. I think, right, for 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 a couple they had of a days. Tough first day, yeah. People, there were so many investors buying in, but they didn't know if they clicked the button and actually placed the trade and at which price they did. Uh, so they end up getting a bill that's like way, way the price is way higher than they expected. And and so I was just wondering, do, do you think the current a stocks change system that we're seeing um, is in a way outdated in certain ways. And also, what are the other, some of the underlying fundamental infrastructural uh, shortcomings uh, that, that need to be improved in the financial system, in the market? Yeah. Well, that's the, the second part of that is a very big, broad, broad <laughs> question. So, uh, uh, well, sort of touch on some themes at least. I don't know if I can answer that one. Uh, but in terms of the, the underlying, does the market need need adjustment? I think capital markets, like any market, uh, can improve itself through innovation and through the you know trying out new models, trying out new new features, uh, trying out new products uh, in the marketplace. And I think that's that's healthy. Again, we serve a very specific regulatory and legislatively um, uh, prescripted purpose, right? So we have a mandate that exists in the Security Exchange Act of, of uh, you know, 39 and, and as subsequently, uh, of 29, excuse me, 31, as subsequently uh, um, uh, amended. But like our, our purpose is written into legislation, which is then written into regulation. And so we have a very specific purpose about bringing together uh, buyers and sellers of securities uh, and doing so in a fair and equitable manner. Uh, and so I think the market does that, um, you know, certainly does that reasonably well. Uh, 
you know, I think we are a, a certain type of innovation that, that we thought was really relevant and critical at, at that moment. And we continue to, to innovate and, and continue to think we provide a, a viable alternative to those that want to try something different. And, you know, we've grown quarter over quarter since we launched as an exchange. And so the market has certainly been positive to what we're bringing. Um, but I think fundamentally, yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't say that the markets aren't working. I'd say they can, like anything else, work better. And that's what we're trying to do and, and continue to support that not only within ourselves, but, you know, through ventures, through the broader ecosystem as well. Uh, so in your current role in IEX Group as the head of ventures, so you source structure and, and you manage new ventures and partnerships with other uh, innovators in financial services. Uh, very curious, since you interact with so many innovators uh, in the financial sector, uh, what are people talking about these days? What are people thinking? Is it, again, I'm asking you to predict things, but <laughs> these yeah. are sort of futuristic questions. Well, yeah. It's, 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 it's thematic, right? It's thematic. Um, so there are well, listen, there, there are folks are talking about everything. We can go to, from quantum computers to uh, and quantum computing in general, yeah. what that means, all the way down to you know getting into sort of the, the the rabbit hole of, of market microstructure. But thematically, I think the big thing is blockchain is still a thing, right? And so, what what is that technology, and how does how does that technology help our our processes, help our infrastructure, help us serve our customers better? And that's that's still a thing. There's probably less excitement on the speculation side than there was a year ago. Um, there's as much, if not more, excitement on the infrastructure side. I know we talked a little bit about that earlier. Another area is is, is AI, ML, and kind of everything underneath that that um, artificial intelligence umbrella, which is really around machine learning and um, you know whether it's NLP or, or other types of tools and 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 technology that's underneath that umbrella, neural networks and others. Uh, and the application, again, in my universe, the application, not just the capital markets, but again, I, I, just to be clear, I look at things well beyond financial services in the role of, of IX Ventures. So I probably spend about two-thirds, 75% of my time very squarely in financial services, but there's a non-insignificant amount of my time that's spent looking a bit broader. Uh, that's why I keep kind of coming back to in our in our area. But in our area, whether it's AI, you could look at the amount of processing power and, and you know the number of PhDs in computer science and math and physics and these other disciplines that have come into the industry in the last 10 years and are building tools to trade better, to evaluate things better, to help internal processes, to think about credit scoring, I mean, you name it. And there are people who right now are writing um, you know scripts or algos to help with decision making or to just totally supplant human decision making. Uh, so that's a big area. I think data and alternative sources and uses of data is another area that continues to be a big deal. Again, probably not quite as big as it was maybe a year ago, but the amount of data and the usefulness of that data uh, has just grown tremendously in the last 10 years, um, You know, particularly with mobile handsets and everybody's got three and four devices and the ability, the internet has created the ability to have dramatically different business models. Uh, communication technology has improved so fast that you can get information from from the time it's created to a place where it's actionable in a much shorter time span than you could even five, six, seven years ago. Uh, and so that's another area where there's tons of attention getting paid. How do you source new data uh, types? And then how do you use it in a way that's, that's effective, whether it's in financial services and other areas? Um, 
you know, I, so I mean, I think at a, at a, sort of the highest level, those are probably the the three things that that are spending a lot. And again, at the edges, at the real edges, there's things on quantum computing. There's things on um, you know, sort of network effects and things around um, like behavioral science. So how do you incent people to to take certain action, whether it's for good or bad, but just using different tools to incent certain action. So that's kind of on the margins. Probably not as as doesn't get as much attention as some of the other areas, but uh, the big ones, I'd say, are those those three. Uh, would you say IX is a fintech firm? Because we're ta- I mean, how do you define yeah. fintech? Most people, I think, a lot of the entrepreneurs that I talk to hate the word. They're like, oh, I'm not a fintech firm. We don't do that. <laughs> it's, it's whatever is kind of popular. If you, particularly if you're if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking for venture backing, so whatever's popular with, with with the venture capitalists at the time, we absolutely are. Uh, 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 we started out as a financial technology firm. Um, I'd actually just argue we're a technology firm. We do a lot. We do. We solve problems leveraging technology. And our, the market that we chose to go out with was one that that our founders and the people that we, that the team that they built knew the most about, which was U.S. equity trading. But if you look at the, the businesses that we have gotten involved with and launched, and, and there's there's a handful that I can be more uh, public about because it's they're public and have been disclosed. I mentioned one was Tradewind Markets, um, still within financial services, but very far afield from. U.S. equity trading, thinking about precious metals, gold, uh, um, um, uh, silver, and you know, again, to launch some more, that's dramatically different than looking at equity trading. Still, tr- than looking at equities, uh, securities, still trading, but that's a much um, smaller market. Probably less trading activity, a little more concentrated in terms of the buyers and sellers, but a very different way. Another business that we we've launched uh, recently is called IEX Cloud. And that's a data business. So it's leveraging, uh, again, starting to th- on that theme of alternative data and other data sources, providing financial data, and, and not even f- providing data that can be used in financial applications. So it's not all financial data, but data that can be used in financial applications in a dramatically different way and in, in a dramatically different business model uh, than exists today. And we've been fortunate. We've been developing that internally for a while and, and, and brought on some partners that helped us expand that program that was launched just earlier this year. It's serving people in financial services, but also outside of financial services, uh, and you know we're just just kind of scratching the 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 surface on the the type of adoption that we think we can get with with that um, product, and the API based, purely API based, really a developer tool. And the last one is is Astra, which is definitely squarely in financial services, uh, and that's certainly an, a, um, you know another tool around data warehousing, so the collection of data from a vast number of participants and allowing. Uh, those same participants to, um, we we source it, we store it, we do some normalization against it, uh, and then allow you to feed it back and run analytics in a way that is is unique and distinct from the way that you can do that today. Um, so that while that's financial services, again, a field, it, it actually we happen to our customers are financial services firms, but the tool itself has applications across industries. You know, anybody that has high volumes of very sensitive data. There's an application for for the the data warehousing uh, application we call Astral that we built. So you can think about things, you know, uh, healthcare, right? Another area that's got massive amounts of information, very very sensitive, uh, that certainly would would be a potential customer for something like this if we chose to to move in that direction. Uh, and there are a handful of other things that we're working on um, actively that have not been disclosed, but that are are not as squarely in financial services. So. At the end of the day, we, we just solve problems leveraging technology. And, and 
right now folks like to call us a financial technology company. That's great. It's awesome. Um, but you know, I don't limit myself in, in the role that I'm in and, and, and as a firm. And we don't limit ourselves to just thinking about what can we do in financial services. That's clearly first and foremost. And we've got, you know, bread and butter person yeah. firm and, and you know, the overwhelming majority are focused on just how do we continue to, to build a better market in the one that we're in and, and continue to innovate there. Um, but, you know, we increasingly are also picking up our heads and saying, you know, how do we how do we just build fair markets? How do we build better markets, uh, not just in the ones that we serve, but as we, we get some muscle memory and as we expand and as we get some scale, how can we solve problems in other areas uh, in a really valuable way where the experiences that we have and the tools that we bring and experiences that we bring uh, can be unique uh, and provide a unique and um, valuable solution uh, in other areas? Uh, I wanted to pivot just a little bit because there was this talk you delivered at the Platform Summit back in 2015 mm -hmm. where – so you basically said that you find it disturbing that there's a shift from people-driven interaction to machine algorithm-driven interaction at the intersection between uh, finance and technology. We're just talking about fintech. Mm -hmm. um, and, and 2015 was the time when we saw the emergence of AI and many applications of deep learning, big data. And now it's 2019. So I was, I was very curious to hear more of your thoughts on, on – have, have your thoughts changed uh, over the past four years on, on uh, you know, pre-people-driven interaction versus machine-algorithm-driven interaction? And uh, what do you think will the impact be when, mm -hmm. when machine and algorithm play a more, ever more important role in, in all those interactions? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. In 2015, the, these kinds of thoughts were still in development, and hopefully they'll always be in development as you take in new information, you continue to learn and evolve. But the fundamental premise hasn't changed very dramatically. When you think about all these technology tools, and, and particularly on the AI side, um, and, and you think about algorithms and machine learning and, and these neural networks and the kind of output, the, 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 the decisions that they can help enable, they're just tools, right? They're tools created by, by humans. And if we don't create them well, they can be used for things that are that for they, they can they can arrive at outcomes that are not the ones that we want. And so I, I'm I still very much am, am am concerned and it's certainly a filter that I have. How are we using the tools and how are we creating the tools that we use to solve problems? And are we ensuring that the tools that we're using to solve problems are doing so in a way that that we want them to? Uh, and are not, you know, that we're not you know, in many ways sort of use a course, and we're not sort of encoding our own limitations into these tools that then manifest themselves algorithmically. Uh, and so, whether it's you know AI that only gets trained on certain types of data, well, when it encounters data that falls outside of those parameters, it just kind of acts up, right? It sort of acts in unexpected ways uh, that are not consistent with how the original creators of that tool wanted it to act. But because we haven't been as thoughtful as we could about what we trained it on, when it encounters something that it's not as familiar with, it kind of acts out. Right? And, and, and I'm using very generic terms because who knows what the application is. Uh, but it, it acts in ways that are not what we want to see. So I do worry about that quite a bit. And, and certainly, uh, you know, I think as a firm, we've been really thoughtful about bringing in the best that we have internally and sometimes even externally advisors and others to really help us think through the models that we use in surveillance and in sort of the tools that we have internally 
and we certainly use that as a as a as a as a, at least a prism uh, when we look at tools and opportunities outside of our firm to make sure that whatever it is we're doing ultimately is going to be in the service of our mission, which is about building fair markets. Uh, so you were just saying how you have this mission of, of building a fair market, and based on our conversation, I feel like uh, you, you're really trying to make the the financial system a more efficient and also a better place for uh, what you were calling the main street investors and businesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it seems that how do you how do you reconcile your ideals uh, for a better financial system with a world that is I wouldn't say fundamentally profit driven but financial system is profit driven so is it possible for ideals of design the ideals of uh, coming up with a better system can it actually reconcile with this sort of profit driven mentality yeah um so, I mean, the short answer is, I think so. Uh, I, I have committed and developed a career in an, in this industry in large part because I think it can do real good for people. Uh, and, I, and I don't necessarily think there's an intrinsic uh, contradiction or conflict between being profit-driven and doing well for society. Like anything else, you know, a, a company is just a series of people Right? And, it, and it, it's got a purpose. Um, and that purpose can be something that ultimately creates more good in the world, or it can be something that, that doesn't. And in many ways, the definition of what good is evolves over time. Uh, you know, taking a, um, uh, what's a, an example? I don't know. Uh, taking an example of uh, a, a, a cigarette company, right? It's a tobacco company. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, where there was much less research about the impacts that tobacco has on people, there aren't a whole lot of people that thought this was intrinsically a bad thing for society. Uh, and over time, as more data came out and as more uh, people understood the implications of smoking and tobacco on, on health and longevity and others, it has become less popular. Uh, it has become less socially acceptable to smoke. And so that evolution, evolution took place over time. And as a result, you see that many of the tobacco companies are much smaller than they, they today than they were in years past. And so that, to me, is sort of the market operating in a way that is reflective of, of society. I think specifically to, to the work that we do at IEX, you know, I came there because it was such a mission-driven organization. Uh, and in the way in which I defined social good and the way in which I defined things that were important to me, this organization represented all of that. It, it represents, again, the mission is creating fair markets, creating fair markets for those participants that are the fundamental buyers and sellers. Again, at the end of the day, it's a long chain. Uh, we're trying to shorten the chain, but it's a long chain. But at the end of the day, these are people. It's firemen, it's teachers, it's it's police officers, it's you know folks that are contributing to their 401k. They're individuals at the end of this chain that, that ultimately we are serving. Uh, and that, to me, was, was pretty powerful, and that, that I think is powerful to many of the people, if not all the people, that, that work at IEX. Uh, and so we are just one example of what I would argue are many uh, that are trying to do things for good. I mean, another example, I'd say, is just how the firm is living into its mission of doing things that are for the benefit of broader society. We were uh, invited to by the, the UN Secretary General Gutierrez uh, last fall to join a task force so it's the UN Task Force on Digital Financing of the Sustainable Development Goals. So this is this 2030 agenda. There's 17 sustainable development goals. Uh, and it's a, this task force is a mix of public sector, 
private sector and other types of nonprofit organizations who are all thinking about ways of leveraging finance and really digital finance, so all this innovation that's happening, how does that impact things like poverty and hunger and quality education and climate change? And how do we, how do we finance all these things? Right? These are tremendously big, broad social problems they're gonna have. You know, there's not one point solution that's gonna solve any one and, and it's gonna take a, a mass coalition. But this task force is, is designed to say, just take this one little piece this one little piece about digital financing, and, and you guys are all experts in one way, shape, or form uh, around some piece of this uh, digital change, this evolution, this transformation, this innovation industry. Help us understand how we can leverage that innovation, leverage that technology, leverage that, that, that evolution to support these sustainable development goals. Uh, and so, you know, we've been working again, it's, I think it's now 24 uh, members all over the world, um, IX is the only exchange and, and uh, really only a North American headquartered firm that's a part of it, but includes uh, folks like Ant Financial, which is the largest financial services firm, depending on your metrics in the world, and uh, EcoCash, which is a, a startup uh, in East Africa that's done tremendous amounts in terms of digitizing, if you will, um, cash. It includes central bank governors, um, uh, GSMA associations, a part of it. Uh, the World Economic Forum is a part of it. So it's this incredible collection of, of organizations, most of whom have an international platform, all of whom have a very um, specific depth and expertise in an air, roughly in capital markets, roughly in finance. And we're coming together to, to try to figure out uh, something, you know, figure out a way that we can serve as a model uh, provide guidelines, sort of, uh, we'll, sort of still in determining what the final outcomes are going to be, but ultimately it's about something that's actionable and tangible that can help us get to what the UN and its signatory uh, nations have agreed is uh, aspirational for 20, 2030, which is around solving for these sustainable development goals. So that's just another example of a, a bunch of private sector entities, not all of them. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, public entities and nonprofit entities that have a different uh, mission and different uh, motivation. There's a number of for-profit enterprises that are spending real cycles, real resources on something that isn't necessarily critical to its day-to-day, um, but we still think it's important enough that we want to be a part of it. We're going to um, commit resources to it uh, to try to do things that are bigger uh, than, our, than our own sort of day-to-day you know, uh, -day work. So it's another example of how for-profit enterprises, uh, we ultimately think it's, it's good for everybody, the work that we're doing, uh, if not necessarily... Uh, immediately good for our bottom line. Uh, so, so I, you know, it's, it's kind of, we went around about, but I, I do fundamentally believe that, that there's a real place for private sector firms for, for, uh, in society. I'm not one of those folks that just think we should abolish it all and what have you. But I also believe, and this is where the Woodrow Wilson School comes out and, and sort of the training and background, but there are places where there, there may not be an opportunity to create a for-profit motive to solve a problem. Right. There are market failures, you know, we used to call them, where there's just not an opportunity to say, how can I make money by solving this problem? And that's the, those, are, those are cases where whether it's government or, or you know, other nonprofits need to come in and step in and, and try to solve those problems. But ultimately, if you can get, you know, one, I think technology actually broadens out the range of problems that can be solved uh, from a private sector perspective because it allows you to engage in, in ways that are cheaper and faster and sort of all these again, fundamental infrastructure things that then say, ah, with this new technology and this new thing over here, I can engage around this problem that yesterday was intractable. Yesterday there was just no way for me to engage because I didn't have the tools. 
innovation and, and, and technology provides uh, greater tools for you to engage to solve problems. That's, that's one. And then I'd say the second piece, again, is where, where there, there aren't those tools, where there aren't those markets, where there isn't that model. That's, that's exactly where government should play, right? That's a really fascinating point that you just brought up, how there are certain places where you, you simply cannot make money through solving the problem. And technology has actually uh, enabled us to broaden out uh, the, the opportunities where we could use this sort of for-profit mentality sometimes to solve some real-world problems. Um, and I was actually talking about this idea with a friend yesterday. And he's a big pro-tech, pro-capitalism guy. He's like, you know, if you have profit-driven mindset that incentivizes people to solve problems, that's how VC works. You know, you, they, they back innovation. So that's part I, I'm not so sure about. And I want to ask you about it because you, previously you said, you know, fintech, we were – uh, you were kind of joking about how uh, the word fintech, fintech sounds good to um, the ventures if you want money from them. So, I, so VC investments drive innovation, but a lot of people criticize VC firms for just you know wanting quick as exits and fast cash. And 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 so I want to hear your thoughts on how how VC has shaped not just IEX growth, but throughout your career, what do you see as as their role in our society and also. The broader question here is, how do, how do we reconcile the fact that they want to have profit-driven, and, and do they actually end up doing good when there's a conflict between uh, what they want to achieve and what humanity uh, wants to yeah. achieve? Well, again, broad questions. There's a lot to That's un- a characteristic a of our show, yeah. I guess. <laughs> a lot to unpack in there, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, please. Well, one by one. All yeah, good. yeah, exactly. Well, I like to level set a little bit before we kind of dive into some of the specific uh, questions and challenges you posed. Venture capital gets a lot of attention from the media, gets a lot of attention from different social channels. But if you really look at the amount of um, of new businesses that are funded through early that are early stage businesses that are funded through VC channels is remarkably small. It's certainly less than one percent of all new business formation is, is funded early stage business formation is funded through VC. And depending on sort of the numbers you look at, you'll see anywhere from twenty to kind of point excuse me, point two to point six percent of all new businesses are VC funded. So it's a relatively small number of firms that are that that are VC investable. Right. Not every firm is VC investable. In, in, in That's why we need Shark Tank. Right. Well, <laughs> every, everything <laughs> it's has its role, right? Everything yeah. has its role. Um, however, on the flip side, if you look at, at the companies that have gone public, right? so you look at public markets now. So there's a big gap between early stage startups and public markets. But if you look at public markets uh, going from 1979 or so to about 2014, 15, the amount of companies that have gone public that were VC funded in the early stages is over 25%. It's around, sorry, it's around uh, 15 to 20%. Right, so dramatically higher number than the number that are funded. So that tells you that there's, uh, there's some um, uh, value that's being created there that can get to scale. Right? And that's typically what a VC wants to fund, something that can get to really big scale. If you look at the number of jobs created, uh, it's around you know 35 or so percent of the total number of, of companies that are public today that are were VC funded. So again, punching above their weight in terms of the the economic impact they have. 
Um, you look at revenue, that's I think like 40 some odd percent of, of, of that. So, so when you go from what businesses are actually funded, it's a small number of businesses. And one of the first questions that I ask people at IEX or you know, in, in, in other areas, why do you want venture money? What is what 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 is what problem are you solving by taking in venture money? Because not every every company should be venture funded. They don't have the growth prospects, the long term ability to scale. Um, you know, it, it, there's as you mentioned, there's a certain profile that typical VCs want to see in terms of your growth trajectory, the amount of revenue you can get, the exit uh, opportunities. And if you don't fit that profile, it, it can be a really difficult road. Uh, to, to secure funding, and even if you are able to secure funding, to meet the expectations of your VC funders. However, if you do fit in that little narrow mold, and some of the, the most innovative companies ever, you know, think of Apple, Tesla, um, GM, um, you know, uh, um, Netflix, right? All these guys were venture funded. Uh, if you do fit that model, then getting VC can help you get to scale very quickly and help you create tremendous value very quickly. So I think it's always helpful just to start. Like 99% of firms don't get venture funding today uh, and are probably just not venture investable. Um, but for those that are, it, they can, it can provide tremendous value and it does provide uh, dramatically more economic value, uh, at least measurable economic value than than uh, the number of firms that it that it that it, it funds. So that's sort of that, I just wanted to start there. Um, but yeah, venture capitalists have a particular role, right? They are you know, they are taking money in from the limited partners, again, typically pension funds or others, and their job is to create value. And they do that by investing in these other companies that they think can grow and not just grow and scale, but where they think there's an exit opportunity, whether it's through a strategic sale to a larger business or it's by going public. And, in, and as we talked about very early in the conversation, there's fewer public companies today, about by half, than there were even 11 years ago. And so that road has gotten harder. Um, firms are staying private longer. Again, 10 years ago, the average age IPO was somewhere around eight years. Now it's 10, 11 years, so the timed IPO is longer. So you're really you're seeing more and more strategic sales uh, of companies. And so, yeah, if I'm a, if I'm a fund, I've got a, a, anywhere from a, on a short end, eight year, on a long end, a 12 year fund cycle. I've got to raise money, I've got to invest that money, and I've got to get exits in that time frame. Not every business, in fact, most businesses are not going to be able to meet that criteria. So if you can meet that criteria, great. Um, go, get, go raise your VC money, grow as fast as you can, solve really interesting problems for people. Uh, and and you know those that funded you at your earlier stages when you had the most risk they should reap rewards they absolutely and again their LPs reap the rewards of that and, and ultimately the the customers of those limited partners yeah, and the pension funds uh, the you know other types of asset uh, accumulators who are serving individuals at the end of the day so I, I do think there's a real place uh, in, around the innovation ecosystem for VC funding and it provides a really valuable and and, and vital um, alternative funding source. Not great for everybody, but for those that it's a good fit for, you know, thumbs up. It's been a great conversation. I just want to start winding down a little bit, ask a little bit more about your career path. Uh, so you graduated from Woodrow Wilson School, um, and then you became a consultant at McKinsey. Uh, certainly have been seen through the dot-com crash 2001 to 2003. Uh, it's been a lot of time on operational improvements, running businesses, and now you're at IEX. So such a diverse range of experiences. 
so big companies versus small startups, where would you advise undergrads or even graduate students fresh out of college and universities uh, to start their career at? And, and how would you compare the um, systemic differences between those places? Yeah, uh, great question. So I learned, so when I went to McKinsey and Company, again, tough times was right after the dot-com crash. Uh, and I actually had a great time there. I had a great experience, met some really great people, worked at some really fun companies and with strong management teams. But what I quickly learned is that I strongly preferred going out and being able to roll up my sleeves and actually affect the change that I was recommending. And so I, I didn't gain as much enjoyment recommending the change and not actually doing it. I really gained the personal fulfillment from going out and doing stuff. Uh, and I said to myself, you know, after a couple of years, what's the, you know, what's the, the way in which I can build a career doing that? And it was going into early stage firms. So when I left McKinsey, I went to, you know, the first firm was a small nonprofit uh, called Management Leadership for Tomorrow. At the time had, I want to say there were, might have been eight, eight or nine people that were there and uh, helped the CEO build out one of three programs. It's now gone on to, be, to receive national recognition, um, but had a sort of a critical hand of building out one of his programs. It's college to, to first job program. And it was a bit of a transition, right? I was sort of excited to do it. It was it was consistent with the Woodrow Wilson mission of kind of doing things in the in the the, the nonprofit or the, the public sector, uh, but wanted more. And so went to a series of early stage companies. After that, took a tour through a larger company, SunGuard. But it's at every point, at every kind of transition point or inflection point, I've been blessed and very fortunate to have opportunities in front of me where I could just say, "What's the hardest problem I can go solve right now?" Uh, and aligning myself with the best people to do that. And then I've gone and done that. And I've been able to build a career doing that. So my career is nonlinear. It's not like I went and did this job. And you think of yourself as a, I don't know if you go to like Procter & Gamble in your life or at P&G, there's a series of jobs. You can see the path relatively early on to getting to senior levels. The path that I was on, it wasn't written. It was you, you find a problem, find some really good people to help you think about that problem and go solve that problem. And it, at, at every point you solved a problem and it was time to move on, it was it was a jump ball. It was just a fresh a fresh board, a whiteboard. It was there was no path. Uh, and but I've been very fortunate that that risk profile fits me. I, I am a risk taker. I like going after new things and going and solving problems that are seemingly intractable. Uh, and you know when there's a, a million ways of figuring out why something w won't work, you know, I focus on what's that one way that this thing will work and going out and doing that. And I've been very, very fortunate to be able to build a career doing that. Uh, when, it, when I think about what I would recommend to people that are that young people that are coming either right out of undergrad or even out of grad school and early in their career, McKinsey was a great learning opportunity. They've got all these structured programs and learning and it's just it's like a learning engine. Right. And I was paid to learn. Now, I was also paid to deliver value, but in many ways I was paid to learn. And so finding those kinds of opportunities early in your career can be really invaluable. Uh, and it can be at a startup, later maybe a technology company, later stage startup that's really been thoughtful about its culture and about its learning program. Um, it could be at a, a smaller VC fund. It could be at a big company. I'm less concerned with the size of the company than the opportunity to learn something that's really important to you uh, in a structured learning program. Uh, I would not recommend for most people going into an early stage startup immediately after school. You just don't know enough to be super effective. Uh, and you want to know something in order to be super effective on day one. You're constantly learning, but you, you, you want to have some core that you're drawing from. 
uh, as you continue to learn and build new and additional skills. So that's what, that would be the one thing. Find some structured totally learning program, even if it's in an early stage company, but somebody that's a company that's been thoughtful about that uh, and really go after that. And, and, you know, two, three, you know, four years, do that. And then go, you know, do whatever's in your heart. You know, you got to make a living. You got to pay the bills. You got to support family, what have you. But ultimately, you know, especially coming out of places like Princeton and, and you know, other, other elite schools, really any uh, university, you should have opportunities. You just got to... Um, um, do awesome. the work to, cre- to continue to create really good opportunities yourself and then take a little bit of risk. Awesome. So usually at the end of our show, we, we ask the, our guest uh, what the policy punchline is. And so we, we talked about, you know, from stock exchanges to VC to entrepreneurship to career experience, AI, all kinds of ideas. Um, so just, what would be your punchline here? What's your policy recommendation? Um, any, any sort of the punchline would be great. For sure. Me. Well, one of the things, we didn't necessarily dive into it, but certainly being really thoughtful right now about the tools that we're creating and the outcomes that they ha- they potentially can have on society. And really thinking about AI, and there's a broad range of things that fall under that umbrella. Uh, but those tools are so powerful, uh, and they're still so new on a relative basis, and the impact that they can have on society are so vast that being, I think that's one of those areas where, um, you know, I'm loath to say we need a government to come in and solve things, what have you, but just... Being really thoughtful about that as a citizen, uh, as a private sector company, as you know, for educational institutions and potentially even for legislators and regulators to be really thoughtful about those tools and the way in which they continue to develop, and, and you know, certainly thinking about parameters around um, good use or um, auditability or other things are certainly, um, I would argue, personally are probably helpful in the long run. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much for this. Wonderful conversation, Lawrence. Well, thank you, Tag. I really appreciate it. It's great being here today. Awesome. And, and welcome back to Princeton. I mean, it's great to be back, right, after? It is. I get down here not as much as I'd like, but probably more than than, uh, than most. Awesome. So we'll, we'll definitely try to pay you a visit in, in New York and CIEX and, and stuff sometimes. Yeah. Always welcome. Just let me know. Awesome. Thank you so much again. Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Policy Punchline. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Stitcher and Google Play. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.